Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host teacher and socialist Andy Lipson and right-wing teacher Jessica from Washington State. We are online at what-s-left.webnum.com and uh, you can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. You can also find our personal social media handles at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZepDKE. Jessica, I don't have your social media handles. You'll have to share it at the end of the episode. Uh, and please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notification, share your favorite episode, uh, jot down our information where you found this episode. Thank you. All right, so today we'll be discussing Ukraine, um, part two, um, uh, a continuation of the current event discussion since, uh, well, since not since we last spoke, because I wasn't a part of that discussion, you two were, and Kenny was a part of that discussion, but Kenny is not with us today, so uh, he will be absent for today's discussion. If you two can fill us in, since we there was a discussion that I was not a part of uh, some time ago, and Kenny's not here with us, so uh, yes, so pick it up from there, Jessica or Andy. Thank you. Yeah, well, first off, again, um, welcome back again, Eduardo. I'm very happy to have you here. And it, it is, I do, it's unfortunate Kenny can't be here because this is, uh, while we're returning to the issue of Ukraine, I also do want to revisit some of the things that were said in the episode two weeks ago. We entitled it Ukraine on the Brain or something like that. Um, and Jessica, you're going to help make sure I'm saying this accurately because at the time I was pretty clear about saying, there's not going to be a ground invasion. There's not going to be Russia. This is all a smoke and mirrors thing. Largely, uh, I was putting it in terms of the U.S. Um, I was putting it in terms that saying that the U.S. ruling class was making a, a lot of noise about things that were sort of regular. I even cited the fact that there had been a previous um, troop movement in Russia up to the those same regions back in April 2021, and nothing happened. I was some. I was essentially predicting a, a similar sort of thing, and that I think, if I remember right, um, I was basically saying that this is an attempt to kind of um, uh, change, change, change our field of vision from the COVID narrative to this momentarily distraction, distraction, distraction. In fact, there were some things going on around COVID at the time, a Supreme Court ruling that took place while this was taking place, and so I was claiming that this was a distraction, um, and I think that was completely wrong. <laughs> so the reason I want to talk about that is in getting that completely wrong, it has helped me sort of say, okay, why was I thinking that? And what do I think is really going on? And um, I'd like to do that for two reasons. One, I've listened to some of the people who also I felt got it wrong <laughs> for the same in the same way, because these are then they're they're mostly non-Marxists because I think they've been getting COVID right. Um, and most of them have kind of, I have to say, don't want to admit they got it wrong. They want to kind of change the subject or rather reframe it in a particular way. And I think that's a mistake. Um, and I don't think it's honest. And I actually think it's bad science because I do actually think the reason I said what I said was not because I was 100% sure of it, but I was 80% sure with a 20% understanding that Russia could go in and invade. It could happen. I knew that, but I didn't think that was likely. Um, and I'll talk about why. And I'll talk about why. I think why I think I got that wrong and what I think it means that I got it wrong. But I think I've, I feel like I've now learned a lot about what my real orientation is around this moment is um, by getting it wrong, making a prediction, getting it wrong, and then trying to make sense of what happened. So 
that's what I hope to kind of go through in this episode. And I told Jessica and Eduardo that I was, I might be taking up a lot of time in this episode. Um, so we'll see. I cannot believe that was only two weeks ago that we had that conversation. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think any of us, you know, we all got it wrong. I don't think any of us were expecting things to escalate um, to what they did. I didn't hear anybody in independent media. I mean, I don't listen to everybody, but I didn't hear anybody really predict uh, this accurately. So yeah, I'm excited to hear what you think about why that is and how, you know, um, how people are kind of, I don't know, not backtracking, but like you said, reframing it. I will say that I think you were right in one sense, Andy, that, I mean, yes, there was, there is an actual invasion, but there's definitely plenty of smoke and mirrors. I mean, I don't, I still don't know quite what to think of this. I don't know quite what my stance is, but I do know, I don't believe the fucking word that's coming out of our media's mouth, our politicians, any of that. And I, I mean, COVID like two, three weeks ago, we were all still like super in COVID land. I mean, I can't remember how long it's been since the Canadian truckers were you know, basically, uh, stamped out. Um, but it hasn't been that long. It's pretty much just been a sudden and very seamless transition from COVID to war propaganda. Uh, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's wild. So, uh, yeah, no, that's, um, that's where I'm at. Yeah. And, and Roddy, you're gonna have to jump in because, uh, when you want, uh, because I, even what Jessica is saying is reminding me of something, which is Jessica in that episode two weeks ago, you had said, well, Andy, you, before I had said that I thought this was a smoke and mirror operation, essentially, it's a simplification, but basically that's what I was saying, that the U S was throwing sand in our eyes uh, around something because this wasn't going to happen. And so it was, a, it was a palate cleanse, political palate cleansing of the working class minds as they, as they try to get us to think about something else, um, which I again say is wrong, but you said, well, Andy, you were the one who said World War Three, and I kind of blew that off. I was like, because I have said World War Three over and over and over again, um, and but I was like, no, 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 this ain't, that ain't gonna happen. Um, but I think in you reminding me, I had said World War Three, that has helped recenter me in terms of oh, because this war that we're seeing, and it is a war, is not between Ukraine and Russia. It's not between the regions of the Donbass and the Ukrainians. This is a war between Russia and the United States. And there's many ways you can know that. But I, one think, of the ways, I think Russia and NATO, because the UK, I mean. Well, uh, let, me, let me just say this. The reason I call it a war between the R- Russia and the United States and NATO will be involved. They're trying to be try to be gathered, but they're not deciding the direction is if there was a settlement reached when we when they talk about reaching a settlement, who do they talk about? They talk about U.S. at the table and they talk about Russia at the table. And that's pretty much it. And that those are the players. So my starting point is to say that now with the war being the with this thing now becoming a war, that it is officially a war, but the beginnings of a war between the United States and Russia. Could it pull back? Yes. Could it grow fast more? 
Yes. And so I do believe we are looking at a scenario that is like the beginning of World War III. Will they pull away from it so World War III doesn't happen this time? Could. But I do believe as a person who, the Federalist, the guy who wrote in The Federalist, who had done simulations in 2019, and this is, this is more like a conservative think tank, they had done multiple simulations of how the, a war would play out if Russia invaded Ukraine and they had all these reasons for doing it was be around fascism and blah, blah, blah. And basically most of the scenarios ended with the limited nuclear war turning into larger nuclear war. And almost all estimates, if I remember, were a billion deaths, right? One billion people dead. So um, this is a, it, this happened now. And so I, my claim is that what we're looking at is a war between the United States and and Russia, and I think it's been backed by the fact that now the United States has chosen to backfill Polish um, fi fighter fighter jets if Poland puts them into Ukraine. You are we are stepping deeper and deeper in a situation where two nuclear powers are making direct contact in in a violent collision. So um, that's my first thing I'll say is this. I believe Jessica was right in reminding me I talked about World War III, and I believe we are looking at a possible detonator for that kind of thing. And and I should have known that, and I'll say why I think I should have known that this was that this was actually likely as opposed to unlikely. Because the reason I said it wasn't going to happen is while my head thought World War III is impossible, my heart ain't ready for it. And uh, now I have to align my heart to understand, no, the way the world, and in fact, I'll say this, I was looking at this war as a distraction from COVID. It's actually, and I should have known this again, and I'll say more about it, it's a continuation actually. This, this event is a continuation of the crisis that had led to the COVID thing, the, all the COVID stuff and all the reorganization of the economy. So in fact, the very thing that I was thinking of as a diversion and a deflection is actually a continuation of the kind of crisis that we would expect to see in a global capitalist system. Um, that is that has run a, that has run into a situation where profits are harder and harder to come by. I'd like to know what you think. Well, your your thoughts on what you think is a continuation. I think for me, what I think is a continuation are two big things. I think one, this is a continuation of tightening um, groupthink and way of being able to view the world. This is uh, more censorship. Um, and second, I think that it's a continuation of a way to blame the failure of capitalism in the way that inflation and recessions and are going to happen. And we can blame it whether it be war or whether it be immigration or whether it be uh, a pandemia or whether it be, you know, another country, we blame it on another country. Now, I think that the next biggest threat is going to be cyber attacks. Like this is the new, this is the 21st century. And we're going to be seeing how uh, that's going to be, I, who knows, this might be conspiratorial, but how at some point there's going to be a unification or uh uh, of big tech partnering together to um, cover up that these cyber attacks are the reasons why the economy is the way that the economy is. 
um, which is a recession and all of this um, up and down of of capitalism. No, and so I I I think those are the two areas where I see this is a continuation of more of the same. Um, so I'll speak to the first. Um, uh, if you see anything in the media, it's very difficult to have alternative views, just like um, it is difficult to have alternative views about around COVID. And I posted something on my own Facebook, which people can follow me at, but I posted something where it said, where something was shared within a group, both of you saw it, a group picture of Batman and um, Robin, where you hate anti-vaxxers and then now you hate Russians, right? <laughs> it's that change or that in narrative in the media that we are the beating the drums of war. And you also have nationalism arising from both Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, and from Marco Rubio, and from both left and right. This is very similar, right? Because it's very unified in the way of thinking in the USA. And there's no mention about Biden's ties to Ukraine and Hunter Biden and uh, his connection because of his son, corrupt dealings there and the whole, um, his emails, which there's new proof that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, Glenn Greenwald, um, my favorite journalist is, uh, you know, got kicked out of the intercept, right? because of more of that same, more of that trying to cover up for politicians and more of uh, censorship. So there's just a amount, I mean, we can link it, I don't have to go into it, but you know, there's enough uh, information that we can see from um, his reporting around Hunter Biden's connection. And Joe Biden has been a long time, has long time interest in Ukraine. So I, I see it as a very direct link. I don't see what the USA has maybe you both might defer here. I don't see how there is a benefit to the USA. Uh, Ukraine doesn't necessarily have a benefit, except that it's very close to you know, Russia. But as, as in terms like as resource, I'm not sure, like it was clear why Bush, I remember when I was part of the anti-war movement, why Bush went to uh, the Middle East, right? There's a, a overtaking of resources there for big oil, right? And if we see now, um, mostly oil in Russia is mostly serving Germany, which is why I see it as hesitant. But I don't see it as a big, big resourceful, um, direct res uh, advantage to the USA, except that you know it wants to monopolize and it can expand its imperial powers and it's on the border. That's the only thing. But as far as resources per se, I'm not sure what it, their benefit is. And maybe you two might defer there. Um, so I, uh, and of course, NATO is mostly funded and controlled by the USA. So, so it's, it's, it's just an excuse, I think, to say, well, every country has its right to be a part of NATO and to be sovereign. I do believe that the Ukrainian people uh, have a right to be independent. I think any country has a right to be independent. And that goes for Cornwall, that goes for este, in Spain, that goes for, um, you know, este, Catalonia. Uh, yeah, Catalonia. And, and that goes for any region that wants to be independent. And I think that that's something that I'll always support, right? In the same way that I think it was unpopular to support, and I've changed it once I thought about it, 
um, for Brexit, right? If if you are voting and you as a country are deciding to come out of uh, a union, in that case, it was the EU, right? Um, then you should have that right. You should always, I'm always going to support um, a fight for independence. But I don't think, I'm not sure exactly if that's the sentiment. It's difficult because you can't really read the sentiment of the people because everything is censored. But Zelensky, the president, wants to be part of NATO. And that's always been part of the plan as far as the U.S. Um, plan. So I think I'm going all over the place here. I'm just sort of trying to make sense of it in my head where I'm thinking, you know, there is a provocation, but the provocation started with the USA, namely Joe Biden. And, and this is his, his, this is what, just like Bush, I see it this way for me, just like Bush was interested in the Middle East, I see Biden in the same way being interested um, uh, in the uh, Eastern, Eastern Europe. This is my view. Um, I'm, I, I can't though, but, but, but what I'm, um, what I'm strictly mostly going to be focusing, I guess, for me is just how much suppression there is in the media to say anything around this. You know, that's my angle, uh, because that's what I keep fearing. It's we're beginning to tighten and liberals, it's the left that's really pushing this. It's all the big tech monopolies. It's all of this banning of, of, of speech that I'm concerned about. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian people have to figure out what they want and they have to fight. Ultimately, this is their fight uh, and we have to stay out of it. And if the Ukrainian people, and we've discussed similarly what, you know, Syrian people and the Kurds and Turkey, and we've discussed other in episodes, if the Ukrainian people ask for the USA to support, that's just another, uh, you know, you're going to be screwed as well. I mean, it's, you have two countries are wanting to be a savior and that's just going to be uh, there that's going to be tricked on both ends of it so they have to really fight for their independence and I support that independence but I do not support the support or the help uh, and I'm quoting there of intervention because it's never gone well um, it's never gone well for the people it's always the working class being screwed over and being taken over and part of the imperialist agenda that's what I think this is all about and I think I'll say one other thing and, uh, and then I'll stop because I've mentioned lots of points here. Um, you know, sanctions were started in Europe with small proxy wars when there was Greece, when there was Yugoslavia, when there was, there was tr trying to stay away from in militaristic intervention. Sanctions were a way to put that pressure of the people on the people to stop their governments and you know in the USA adopted sanctions and I was reading a little bit about that history and I don't have right now all of the list of countries but it's been a, it was a long list of countries where the USA has sanctioned you know and on there is Venezuela on there's Cuba on there is North Korea there's a lot of countries but if you look at it there aren't like the pressure, sanctions haven't really worked. They haven't worked in trying to change regimes. Yes, a few countries have given into that pressure, but you know, on my, 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 Myanmar, I'm sorry, my, Myanmar, and all of the countries that we're seeing today, like North Korea, Venezuela, they just it's not going to change what we think the USA is trying to do. There's just no change. 
So sanctions always affect the working class, always affect the poor. And I was reading some, I was reading that, you know, with all these new sanctions on Russia, there's going to be, the middle class is just going to, there's just going, there's not going to be a middle class anymore. And I feel for the people of Russia and I feel for the people of Ukraine as well, right? But uh, that's my point of view on sanctions. And I I used to think, you know, way, if you remember like episodes in the very beginning of what's left, I used to think maybe it could potentially, you know, cajole or, or try to corral a country into change. Uh, but, you know, you know, once I've read more, once now I've I've been involved in this in in these political discussions, and I see it's just it's just not going to for Iran and for other countries. It just doesn't work. It's always the people like us that get affected. You know, so those are my points that I came up with, and I can speak more about them. But I'll stop there. I think we can all have a discussion around any of those topics that I that I um, that I brought up. Well, my belief on sanctions is that they're an act of war. Mm. I mean, they only hurt the people. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I suppose in some respect, yeah, they can like cajole support, but only by starving people out or, you know, depriving them of basic needs. And yeah, I, I'm excited to hear Andy your your kind of um, articulation or perspective on like how this is part of the COVID stuff because I, I do I do think it's I mean COVID maybe but the reset I mean yeah this like we're already seeing like an economic reset like they're they're crashing the economy on purpose like you just heard Joe Biden right say yeah well oil prices, they're going to go up, they're going up. Um, I mean, it's worse in Europe because they get so much more of their oil from Russia. <laughs> I, I do think like, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know as much as I wish I did about the sort of economic side of things, but I think a lot of it is total lies and manipulation i think we have plenty of oil i think the united states has plenty of oil um i read today um because canada has also banned imports of russian crude and i saw cory morningstar posted something about um apparently canada hasn't even gotten any of their crude from Russia since 2019 and yet you know what's happening up there the same thing is here their prices are all going up it doesn't make any fucking sense I mean it's just crazy so I totally think this is part of a strategic targeted economic reset food prices are going I mean everything is going up and like you said Eduardo like it's it's the working class that's going to suffer um it's always right. I mean, it, it, I think in some sense it like with the distraction from COVID stuff, like it, it already just in two weeks, like it has interrupted and kind of subverted some of the, like the collective solidarity um, that's built up over the past two years around COVID and in opposition to uh, governments and, and institutional policies. And so in that sense, I mean, there's nothing that unifies empire like war, right? I mean, there's just, 
it's it's the number one thing right in terms of rallying in the u.s like bipartisan support bipartisan predator class um yeah no it's just yeah war propaganda right like top-down support um it's incredibly powerful and i think we're already we've already seen that and it's it's very frightening um coming coming from the left like as much as the right right i this is a larger discussion i want to get into yet because i still want to get into the roots of how i think this is connected to the covid stuff but i do think i actually do think the u.s this benefit this this conflict benefits the united states i actually think it was the u.s made it happen <laughs> like they they goaded it into action um and i want to say something about sanctions although this is not important i do i do think sanctions work and i agree with jessica that sanctions are an act of war but they're just part of a you know level one level two level three it's the way the ruling classes um it, it, it give threats you tighten the sanctions to say and if you don't give in to this then we're going to go up a step higher if, so it's the ruling class under, I do believe the ruling classes of the globe understand that sanctions are an act of war. So they calibrate how much they're going to make a threat. Like it's how much they're going to- hybrid war now, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And then how much they're going to mean mug you to kind of say, are you going to be giving in? Because you understand if you don't give in to my, to my face, then I'm just going to, now it's going to get worse for you. You know, so sanctions are just part of a series of steps that I think they will, that they will use to escalate as a part of an attack on a country and on a people. And sanctions, as we can see here, don't just hurt the working classes of the people sanctioned. They are intended, to, they also hurt the working classes of the, of the imperial power that's delivering it because the very sanctions we're delivering now are being used as the excuse for the working classes in the United States to accept more um, economic hardship and misery in the name of solidarity with the US ruling class against Putin, right? So more, more of this is trying to drive the, just like COVID did, although this isn't my connection, I'm driving, I mean, this is only part of the connection. COVID was partly of building solidarity between the US ruling class and its own working class. And now we see another, something that we understand that's more obvious imperialist war um, doing that. Um, but I, I do wanna go deeper into that world, into that word imperialism, because I think it's thrown around a lot. Um, and I think that's, and I do believe this is an imperialist war. Um, it is, I think there are people who look at this war and many people I read, they will almost look at this war as conspiratorial. Like it's actually a planned war. Like it's just a, it's a fiction. It's a kabuki theater because behind the scenes, there are people planning things out. That is not the view I have of this world. Although there is planning and there's conspiracy all the time. I actually think what we're seeing is a result of the anarchy of various conspiratorial units. Will be at China, be it Russia, be it the United States, be it, be it those who run the, who want the world to be run on the, on the, what is the, the Chinese currency? Is it the yuan? Yen, right? Yen, yen, yen sorry. Yen. Yeah. The, those who, who see a vision of the world being run with the yen and those who see the vision of the world with the, uh, being run by the dollar. Those two sectors are in battle with each other. And there's an anarchy of competition that I actually believe have produced these events. And that was one of the things that I, again, lost sight of because a lot of times I use libertarians and folks like that as my best sources of current information. And I think I kind of fell into that way of looking at the world a little bit of, as almost conspiratorial, as opposed to understanding we don't live in a, in a globe of conspiracy. We live in a globe of anarchy, of, of anarchic competition. 
And again, that's a Marxist theory. I'm not proving it, but that's that's my that's the way I, I do look at it. So I, I want to start here. I want to start with Fabio Vigi, who I think Jessica, you you have been in episodes or maybe you've heard those episodes where we've actually read this Italian Marxist guy who's talked about how COVID is connected to the economy and things like that. Are you familiar with that stuff? Maybe I'm blanking, but I don't. All right. Well, <laughs> but I'll, get, I'll, I'll catch yeah, up. You'll be re familiar. So here's what he had said about, about COVID. And both me and Kenny and were really like into it. And I think even Eduardo thought it was good. We examined it with, um, with, um, with Rob, no? Rob, yes, exactly. Uh, my friend from uh, back in Cincinnati who was a... Who studies banker. economy and banker. Yeah, yeah. And he really agreed with the view. He was like, yeah, this guy, this, this Marxist is, is kind of right about what's going on. So here's the framework that Fabio Vigi, and it's one I believe, and it's one I, in a sense, forgot, okay? Um, so here's what he said. He goes, the COVID crisis should be framed as a capitalist phenomena through and through, rather than a, rather than a contingent microbial event that has taken uh, the world by a surprise. It is naive to think that the pandemic was merely an accident. The pandemic, he puts in quote, was unleashed as an accelerator of capitalist predatory violence aimed at the preservation, and this is an important word, of the financial sector and attendant hierarchies of power. Um, they do so in the name of blind capitalist drive for profit-making, which they duly represent. He goes, he goes on further. We are therefore in the midst of a global geo-financial and geopolitical mutation, one of those watershed moments that very rarely occur during one's lifetime. In this respect, economic implosion and the exercise of biopower should be regarded as two sides of the same coin. And he goes, the elementary reason, this is basic Marxism he's gonna be saying right here, the elementary reason for the current dystopian acceleration is that wage labor, the pillar of capitalist mode of production and its social ontology, has grown, he's saying, obsolete. Um, the exponential increase in technological automation has progressively eroded capital's capacity to generate surplus value and therefore wealth through the exploitation of labor. Since the third industrial revolution in the 1980s, capital invested in the real, in the real economy has experienced a dramatic loss of profitability as the employment of increasingly sophisticated machines has continued to eliminate wage labor well beyond the system's capacity to reabsorb it. He's basically citing two trends that are common, common in Marxist um, ideas of crisis and of, yeah, of crisis really. So the first thing he's talking about is something called the, 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 falling, the, rate, the falling rate of profit. That is a, a tendency that Marxism sees in it because increasingly, the more and more investment has to go into the form of dead labor or machines as opposed to living labor, which is where profit is extracted out of. And so the ability to extract profit out of, in, out of industrial production becomes harder and harder and harder. And that leads to the, the place where profits are found to be increasingly in the financial sector and in specifically in, 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 specula in speculation. And that area of the financial sector is also more unstable and can lead to even deeper crisis. Um, and so those are two of the things that Fabio Vigi was talking about. And he's saying that those are at the base of understanding why COVID came into play, that it was entirely economic. It's about what's happening, particularly the building up of financial capital as industrial capital becomes less of a, a less of a thing because there's less, per, there's less profit to be generated out of that. Um, uh, and uh, that the, the, all these events are an attempt to recover profitability in the only way they know how, which is drive down the standards of workers, 
concentrate, and again, this is an important thing, concentrate wealth and organization at the top, okay? Um, and, and of course, he did, Lenin's not talking about this, or uh, Vigi's not talking about this, but Lenin does, and I'm going to get into that. This is also leads to more explosive things like wars um, as these concentrations take place. Um, so that's Fabio Vigi, and I'll, maybe I'll stop there because what I'd want to do is actually draw a connection between Fabio Vigi's vision of the world in 2020 to Lenin's vision of the world in 1916. And I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, and so Lenin was writing about imperialism um, and, and not writing about it as a policy, but writing, it at, writing about it as something that was endemic to capitalism because of crisis and because of trends of how of how capital would accumulate in the context of crisis, um, which I'm going to do a little. I'm going to show you some stuff from that as well. But I don't want to go too far before uh, you know. Want to see where you folks are at? So that's my starting point. I don't have much to say about that. I think uh, it's it's a point of view that I remember reading some of it before, and I don't find any. I'm not in disagreement with it. I'm not sure if I fully embody and adopt it, but I don't have anything else. So at the moment, this is the perspective that I'm open to. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm not introducing it like, okay, if you can't argue against this, then you got to believe. It's more just no, like, no. this is a framework for understanding right. it. And I, and I think what you're kind of saying is, yeah, I can get the framework. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I agree with the framework, but I get the framework. Well, I think at the moment it's the most appealing one. So I might just be in agreement with it because I don't see an alternative to it. So the, I, for me, it's, it's, I, I don't, this whole, we've discussed it with Jessica already. This whole pandemia is not, it is not the, the crisis that it's made out to be as stated by the world and the media and all that we've already discussed it. so yeah. what is then the reasons for this behind this and I, I, Fabio uh, I'm sorry I, Fabio Vigi I, Fabio Vigi um, um, presents this alternative that I, I I think at this moment I'm in agreement with right um, and then there's war and then there's cyber attacks and then there's something else that's going to be a cover-up for the way that our economy is works now so I don't have anything to say about it. But he's, he's again saying the pandemic is a fake crisis, mm -hmm. but, the, but the crisis for profitability is a, not a fake crisis. No. That's the real crisis, but the fake crisis is attempting to hide. And that, okay, so. oh. well, would it be fair to say basically, I mean, this is the first time I'm reading this text, but um, basically that COVID amounts to the controlled demolition of the global financial system for the purpose of resetting it, rebranding it so that we can just try to continue unsustainable capitalism into the fourth industrial revolution. Yes. He would be more, he would probably be more specific about the rebranding, but yeah, essentially it is a very much in line with the idea of, well, the Greece great about he believes in this notion of a great reset, but he thinks that it's an attempt to recover profitability. He actually, I think, is going to think say, then it won't be successful because the rate of profit will continue to fall and fall and fall as the amount of investment that you put into machines that are not human labor, which is where 
Marxists think all profit can get only comes from human labor. That's a that's a theory, a Marxist theory. He's mm-hmm. just saying that it the can it will only mean that the the the, the, the rate of profit will fall even more in, in time with these plans that the capitalists have to automate everything. I don't Before, find any to support there. Oh, go ahead, Jesse. Sorry. No, I did, at some point I want to hear this might be for later, but sort of like how China and Russia either are part of that, you know, um, framing or would he say that they're like, like messing it up, you know, well, that's why like we're choosing this moment to provoke right. Russia. Well, I, w- I would ask you, so I'm going to go to the next section. I want to get to Lenin's imperialism. And obviously there weren't giant computers then. There wasn't a bunch of data being collected. There was oil and there were resources. And Lenin's going to talk about imperialism at that time. In, the, in terms of resources and the redividing of resources in the context of the world has already been completely divided. So how do you redivide it? But now let's add into it data, uh, well, add into it data essentially. And that, and that being another re- resource today that now must be um, captured. Um, and if you don't capture it, then your opponent captures it. And if your opponent captures it, then that's a problem. Yeah, Ch- China harvests data better than us. Yeah. Right. Yep. And that and that's a problem for the United States because that's a another resource is that is a, oil's a resource, other things are resources, lithium, all that kind of stuff, but so is data. And all of this goes into the into the bin of gotta get it all for all the various competing powers we're we're saying. Um, maybe I should get into the sections of Lenin's Lenin's imperialism and just note, and for me, I, I'm not gonna say it's it's a one-to-one thing. But I see many similarities into the world, into the world that Lenin's describing back in 1916, to the world that Fabio Vici is describing in 2020, and I think that's interesting to me. Um, so maybe I'll share and my screen. While and I for our, our our audience, you'll share the link, right? Yes. Well, it's it's Lenin's. Uh, I'm taking selections from Lenin's Imperialism: The Highest Stage of Capitalism. It was written in 1916 at the at the beginning of World War I as he tried to explain why World War Ones were, were coming off when socialists didn't think such a thing was gonna happen. And also they backed their own countries when it did happen. Um, so these are just little snippets from, from the book itself that I'm kind of put together to help frame it. Um, so first it says crisis of every kind, economic crisis most frequently, but not only these in their turn incre- increase very considerably the tendency towards concentration and towards monopoly. And he goes, monopoly, this is the last word in the last phase of capitalist development. Uh, but, we sh- uh, but we shall only have a very insufficient, incomplete, and poor notion of the real power and significance of modern monopolies if we do not take into consideration the part played by the banks. So what he's talking about is he's, you're seeing at that time a greater and greater concentration of industrial capital so that be, big industrials that own all sorts of different things so they can make all their stuff like they don't they don't they own it all so they can make it all. And he's saying, well, you were, we're not only just seeing a concentration into monopoly of industrial capital, we're seeing a monopoly monopoly and a concentration of financial capital. Um, and he's putting them in terms of the ba- of banks. And he says, and this is, again, descri- he's describing a process that happens under capitalism that leads to a, a state of imperialism. That means there must be wars. It has no choice that wars must be fought because of it and that they're not policy decisions, that these wars are a result of the, of, of the way capitalism works and its crisis. So he, he goes on, and again, these are snipped out of different parts, so I'm not gonna say this is just one part. 
Um, as banking develops and becomes concentrated in, in a small number of establishments, the banks grow from modern, from modest middlemen into powerful monopolies, having at their command almost the whole of the money capital of all the capitalists and small businesses, and also the larger parts of the means of production, the sources of raw materials in any one, in any one country, and in a number of countries. The transformation of numerous modest middlemen into a handful of monopolists is one of the fundamental processes in the growth of capitalism into capitalist imperialism. So again, he's describing a period at the dawn of the imperial age of capitalism, but he's saying the concentration of wealth in industrial capital, but also into finance capital. And finance capital, he actually believes is the key towards the, towards the, the probability or the inevitability of this imperial stage that capitalism finds He's saying this is what that process is. It's, it's a process of concentration. Because the monopoly of the banks merges here with the monopoly of the ground of ground rent um, and with monopoly of the means of communication. Since the rise in price of land and the possibility of selling it profitably in lots is mainly dependent on good, good means of communication with the center of the towns. And these means of communication are in the hands of large companies which are connected with the same banks through the holding system and the distribution of seats on the boards. Again, he's just talking about this interpenetration of all these different institutions, communication, uh, land ownership and land renting, along with industrial capital and finance capital, all coming into this giant web, um, largely in the end uh, held under the control by financial capital. This means that the development of capitalism has arrived at a stage when although, co although commodity production still reigns and continues to be regarded as the basis of economic life, it has in reality been undermined and the bulk of the profits go to the geniuses of financial manipulation. At the basis of this manipulation and swindles lies socialized production, but the immense progress of mankind which achieves the socialization goes to benefit the speculators. So he's talking about now how finance capital is beginning to dominate it and it's all now a speculative profit grab, um, which he says is, creates even greater instability. The concentration of production, the monopolies arising uh, uh, therefrom, the merging or coalescence of the banks with industry, such is the history of the rise of financial capital, and such is the content of that concept. Thus, the 20th century marks the turning point from the old capitalism to the new, from the domination of the capital in general to the domination of finance capital. All right. Um, and the characteristic feature of imperialism is precisely that it strives to annex not only, not only agrarian territories, but even the most highly industrialized regions. Because one, the fact that the world is already partitioned obliges those contemplating a redivision to reach out for every kind of territory. And two, an essential feature of imperialism is that the rival, rivalry between several great powers in the striving, in the striving for hege, hege, hegemony for the conquest of territory, not so much directly for themselves so, as to weaken the adversary and undermine his hegemony. So he's basically saying, I don't go after stuff just because I want it, but I see my opponent wants it, so I got to go take it. Um, and finally, I'm coming to an end here. The capital exporting countries have divided the world among themselves in the figurative sense of the term, but finance capital has led to the actual division of the world. And I think this is an important statement. He's actually saying that national, cap national boundaries don't actually really define the basis for he hegemonic powers. He's saying finance capital goes beyond national boundaries, but not into what is called super imperialism or hyper imperialism, where one, one giant bank octopus controls the world, but actually competing financial centers that may stretch beyond national boundaries, 
So it might won't just be U.S. It'll be U.S. NATO, um, and it won't just be China. It'll be China Russia. But all these regions represent sectors of financial capital that have some national origin of some sort, but their finance capital coming into collision with each other. Imperialism is the epoch of financial capital and of monopolies, which introduce everywhere the striving for domination, not for freedom. Whatever the political system, the results of these tendencies is everywhere reaction and an extreme intensification of antagonisms in this field. So to me, to reread this stuff and to think of Fabio Vigi talking about the world that is developing as it is, and to read about Lenin describing, trying to come to understanding of why World War I is happening, it just reminds me that yes, this is all coming down to economics. It's all coming down to how capitalism organizes the world and is organized around anarchic competition. And that we are at a period because of the level of crisis where the COVID crisis was a surprise and it, was a, and it expressed a deep problem in the economy. Why would I be so surprised that that deep problem in the economy, which was not solved, should find itself in, in, in expressed in a war that none of us want to happen, but is inevitable under, and even I was saying it has to happen in some ways because that's the way capitalism is. Why should I be surprised when it happens now? I shouldn't. I, sh I, I, in many ways, I, I, my surprise of it, or my saying that it was, was, was me diverging from my own understanding of how the world really operates. Um, and I believe that we are headed towards World War III, not because it's inevitable, like next year or even in a month, but this is a war between the United States and and Russia, and it is something that is desperately indicative of a deep crisis in the world and the system. But it's very much in line with the deep crisis that was exposed to us through this COVID fiction, because it's all based in many ways, or it's very centrally based on the concentration of monopoly capital, of financial capital, of speculative capital, of the falling rate of profit. And that is harder and harder to come by and it's going to lead to more and more massive conflicts. All wars are bankers wars. Um, <laughs> okay, I, so I, I guess one question I have is I want to know how you see this. Oh, I'm sorry. Does everything, was that coherent? Because when I read and talk at the same time, it's hard. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for putting it up too. Because I'm just much okay. easier to take it in when I can actually read it. Yeah. Me too. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So you kind of started to talk a little bit about this, but I want to know how you kind of see this. Because I know this has been a thread on the show, um, kind of the debate between um, more of like a competing world powers view versus the sort of, uh, you know, one world order, one world government type of thing. Yep. Um, and just in, in, in terms of uh, what you mentioned about, you know, uh, national borders not defining uh financial centers of power necessarily you know i mean world bank right um even just like going way back like uh rome right and then uh financial kind of global uh center right was london the commonwealth um so yeah i mean do you see this as going something in between those like we're headed toward like you said, China, Russia, are we headed toward like a Eurasia, Oceania, you know, Orwell type of thing? Is that what we're dealing with? Or yeah, like how does this play with, with nation states? I mean, 
my if I was to break this down into how I think it divides out, it's going to be the countries which who are run on the yen currency versus the country who are run on the dollar currency. That's how I think this is going to come down. Now, are there political and centers from which those fights emerge? Like, you know, in from coming out of China or coming out of the United States who really run the show? Yes. But so there are national centers for that out of which the dollar emerges or the yen emerges. But China will be counting on a, a series of allies that are largely bound up through finance capital and investment capital through that finance capital for the possibility in some ways of using it productively and in, in terms of the building of industry. But I do think in all cases for the Chinese and for the US, it's going to be harder and harder to find that profit because of the falling rate of profit in the context of how production, what's happening to labor in the, in the face of automation. Um, but so that's how I would describe the, the world dividing um, and how it's divided. It won't just be a, a war, but well, it will be seen as a war between China and the United States, but it's going to be a war between the financial centers represented by those two countries. Yeah, I mean, Russia's already saying like, fuck your dollar, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. And then there's crypto. Uh, I don't know if I want to open that back first, but uh, anyway, sorry. That is going to be swept into the, I mean, that is going to be swept up easy by these, gobbled up like a, easily by these powers. And all those folks are going to find themselves, you know, where are you going to be? You're going to go with China crypto or US crypto? That's how it's going to come down. And it's already gone down. So I don't know how it could be ended from it's very indicative that like the i would say like the number one weapon they used against the truckers was not actually even like police military force but it was the bank accounts yeah yeah um and so i think i think the 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 nwo folks you know basically the new world order folks they look at these world economic they have a different view of like things like the World Economic Forum and even of the UN. They look at those almost literally as the places of a planned global economy coming into, into form. And, and they'll say, look, they're being, they're being honest about it. And, and I look at it differently. I, I look at those places. Those are sort of like places where poker tables are, are laid out. And sometimes the poker table is more controlled by the United States. And sometimes it's more controlled by China, depending on who sets the agenda. But it's a it's a it's a it's a form of competition, um, by and large, um, and it breaks down. And you can see that you can see how the UN is breaking down now, right along lines. You know the notion that the UNESCO somehow is this thing where everyone's everyone's going to get on board. It's like nah, Russia's going to China's going to go one way, United States is going to go another. Now they're both going to go in the same direction. They're both going towards collecting everyone's data, automation and stuff like that. But it's a race with each other. It's not a collaboration with each other about building a giant pr global prison for us. No, that's not what's happening. They're, they're building prisons for the, for the respective working classes, but to, they're doing that on the basis of extracting capital out of them so they can defeat their opponent in the extraction of capital and the collection of more capital beyond their borders. So that's why like, built into imperialism is exploitation, exploitation of workers abroad, but it must come out of work, workers at home. And so both ruling classes have to sell that. And that's true for the Chinese ruling class. 
That's true for the U.S. ruling class, and that's true for the Russian ruling class, which there I would still claim them a little bit of a sub-imperial power. But all this whole Ukraine operation is an, is an is is an imperialist operation in terms of the United States, but also in terms of Russia. Yeah, because people are accusing Putin of you know doing imperialism or whatever, you know, especially with the Donbass, despite the fact that you know, U.S. has been funneling weapons into Ukraine for almost a decade. Uh, those people have been shelled, m- most of whom, right, are ethnic Russians, Russian-speaking. They consider themselves, you know, to a large extent Russian or, or, or I don't know, maybe like autonomous. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say that the unfortunate situation, and I agree really with what Eduardo was saying, I would support independent forces if they existed there, but they don't. You've got Ukrainian forces that represent the United States and Ukrainian forces that represent Russia. And both of them are, both empires have their fingers knee deep. If there's anything independent there, it's gonna be tiny and it's not gonna have a voice. Typically a vassal state, like at the expense of the actual people there. Right, right. And, And one final thing, I mean, is there was, there was a statement made by some Russian socialists that I think was interesting that I think actually speaks to what I, what I think we would say here um, that I could show, but I want to see if we want to talk about this more. I, I don't have anything to add. I think I, I appreciate you sharing with us um, that, um, you know, that it is this, um, this other side, this other point of view, I think it's very helpful. I, I really do appreciate it. I do. I would think that it would be best if you showed this some some. Tips. Yes, I'll, I, when we when we do the episode, I'll do the things. You're right. I should have done that in the, in the yeah. first place. And like we've done yeah, with other want, articles before. Yeah, and I just want to say that getting making the prediction I did and getting it wrong was just helpful for me in shaking my head loose and saying I had to kind of go back to my basic principles. Again, I'm not claiming this is right. I'm just claiming that these are these are the ideas that have helped me understand the world. And for me, currently, this is the stuff that still helps me understand the world I'm living in. So can I show this other video? Mm-hmm. And I think it'll speak to what I think are our tasks here. Um, let's see, what to do, share screen. So um, this is this, this is a dude from Greece. Um, he was with Sarisa, which makes him somewhat not credible. Um, and but uh, but he did get a note from these Russian socialists, and he read it aloud in, in this Russell Brand show. And I don't want to. And I think there's a lot of interesting things they say. We received uh, a letter signed by several organizations of Russian socialists from Moscow, from Saint Petersburg. And allow me to read. Um, just a few extracts, I won't bore you too much, uh, of what they say. So here we go. We are told, they say, that the opponents of this war are hypocrites and that they stand not against the war, but for the West. This is a lie. This is Russian speaking. We have never been supporters of the United States and its imperialist policies. When Ukrainian troops shelled Donetsk and Luhansk, we were not silent, say the Russians, nor would we be silent now when Kharkov, Kiev, and Odessa are being bombed on the orders of Putin and his Camarilla, his entourage. There are so many reasons to fight against the war. For us, advocates of social justice, equality, and freedom, they are especially important. 
This is an invasion. No threat to the Russian state exists. They go on. I won't bore you reading the whole paragraph. This war produces incalculable disasters for our peoples. Both Ukrainians and Russians are paying for it dearly with their blood. Long after the dust has settled, poverty, inflation, and unemployment will affect everyone. And they continue. This war will turn Ukraine into rubble and Russia into a prison. This is Russians speaking. The opposition media have already been shut down in Russia. People are placed behind bars. Soon, Russians will have only one cho choice, and that is to rise up or prison. This war multiplies all the risks and threats to our country, Russia, they mean. Even Ukrainians, who a week ago sympathized with Russia, are now enlisting in the militia to fight our troops. Finally, fighting for peace is the patriotic duty of every Russian, not only because we are the custodians of the memory of the worst war in history, Second World War, when 20 million Russians died, or the Soviets, but also because this war threatens the integrity and very existence of Russia. And they finish off with this beautiful paragraph. Putin is seeking to connect his own fate with the fate of our country. If he succeeds, then his inevitable defeat will be the defeat of the entire nation. Then we may indeed face the fate of post-war Germany, occupation, territorial division, the cult of collective guilt. There's only one way to prevent these catastrophes. We ourselves, the men and women of Russia, have to stop this war. This country belongs to us, not to a handful of distraught old men with palaces and yachts. It is time to take it back. Our enemies are not in Kiev and Odessa, but in Moscow. It is time to kick them out. War is not Russia. War is Putin and his regime. That is why we, Russian socialists and communists, are against this criminal war. We want to stop it in order to save Russia. No to intervention, no to dictatorship, no to poverty. Russell, that was the best news I had since the beginning of this invasion, reading this piece. So just what I'll say is, the part, there are some things I disagree in that statement or have issues with. But what I agree with is socialists in Russia saying that the tasks before them are to take on and take down their own government. And that is what I believe is, and, and, to, and to point out to workers in Russia that this war is going to come at the cost of Ukrainian workers and cost of Russian workers. And that, and that is an internationalist statement because I would say that socialists in the United States must make the same claim to their, to their workers, um, not, oh, Putin's the enemy, but that Putin is not the problem. Kiev is not the problem. Zelensky is not the problem. The problem is Biden. The problem is Pelosi. The problem is Republican and Democratic Party. And the, well, really, the problem is the US capitalist system and the, and the oligarchy that rules it. So our job, our task is to take them out of power and to take them down. And that, that um, notion was, again, something that Lenin had spoke of in World War I, which was to say, not turn imperialist war into peace, but turn imperialist war into civil imperialist war abroad into civil war at home. Because I don't agree uh, that our task is to make peace. Our task is to make war. Our task is to make war on our rulers. Um, and that's what a revolution would be. And I also took issue with them saying, oh, look, don't do this because Putin is going to make, we're going to lose. And, 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 uh, and when we lose, we're going to be turned into like, a, you know, what happened to Germany when it lost World War II. Russian socialists did not call for the defeat of their own empire, which was the Russian empire, 
because they were afraid of losing. They were just as afraid of winning. And the idea was not, it was called revolutionary defeatism. You call for the defeat of your own government, whether it wins the war, quote, or loses the war, because that's the international's position, not on the basis of, hey, we're going to lose this, so let's not do this. So um, just want to be clear about that. That brings up sentiment about what we've discussed about Palestinians when, you know, the liberals, you know, talking points are about we support Palestine, we support Palestine, but you're also supporting Democrats, you know, and it's it's what I remember the episode that we did that what we can do is in solidarity with the Palestinian people is what we do here as, you know, other fellow workers, comrades, people who also are on the same vibe about learning to uh, deal with this, um, with the corruption, with suppression, with, you know, just the oppression that we experience from governments. So I, I, I do appreciate you bringing us back to that, to, to that, um, sen that sentiment that we have to be doing our work here. And our work here is to expose Biden, <laughs> right? And to really draw the lines as to how we've gotten here, because right now all of the, uh, in, all of the pointing fingers is at Russia, and we're not making those connections as to how this is actually how we got there. And there is a censorship of that. So I, for me and my work, it's about you know, exposing that we are being controlled and narratives are being controlled and manipulation and a lot of uh, dis discussions are banned. A lot of things are not being, that's how I think my job here is, is well, this is what we're doing here on what's left and sharing on all different kinds of platforms, even with the ones that are banning us sometimes and censoring us. But I think that's really what I think I would like for us or for myself, I see my role in this as I continue the fight and in schools and public education, but to see that I have a part in making sure that we discuss these things openly and go against censorship. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like governments are just inherently corrupt and only exist in order to hoard wealth and centralize power and control population. Uh, I mean, yeah, like, these leaders, they're globalists, right? Like oligarchs gonna oligarch. Uh, I don't know. I just, that video, I, it, we're in a lose-lose, I feel. I mean, I re it, it really is scary shit because I don't see the U.S. backing down. I mean, it, like it's been what, since the 90s? Like we've promised again and again we're not going to expand NATO East. We're not going to add more countries. We're not going to take in Ukraine, right? We break their promise every time. Mm -hmm. And there's video, right, of even literally Biden, right, like our current president in, I think, the 90s, right, saying, oh, what would provoke Russia? <laughs> it would be us expanding NATO and trying to trying to incorporate more territory, right? We have fucking insane weapon i mean so many people have said this right but like imagine if there were nukes or you know even just lower level weapons right like lined up on the canadian border the mexican border like we would consider it a provocation of war but obviously i mean they know 
the U.S. knows what it's doing. NATO knows what it's doing. So I don't see us backing down, uh, particularly not with elections coming up, right? They always love to throw war propaganda around before an election. Um, so, I mean, Putin's basically in a position where he either has to back down or or this is going to escalate. And it really, I mean, if they, you know, the no-fly zone, like if that, if that happens, it's like we could go to nuclear war. Yep. We really could. Yep. So I... <laughs> Yeah, I don't mean I don't I don't know. Like I don't know what's gonna happen. I think it's really scary. I mean, I I don't really see how this helps Biden's election, to be honest, but I do see how this helps the United States. Um I do believe that the US drew Russia into this. Like I think the US wanted Russia to go in because I think they know that inevitably they are going to go to war with Russia and China. They know that that's coming and they have to prepare for that. And it, and as Adam Schiff said, I think he said this in 2014, he said, better to fight when, when, they, when he was talking about the importance of Ukraine, better to fight Russia there than to fight them here. And that's what they're doing. This is a replay of the strategy they used when they drew Russia into Afghanistan in, 20, in 1980s. And that's how they brought, brought down the Soviet Union. And I actually think they think that they can take one of their one of their pieces off the board because they do know that they got to take on both China and Russia. And that currently this is and this is the criticism that people like Tucker Carlson, who I do think understands that this is that this could lead to World War Three. And he's one of the few people in mainstream media who's been critical of it. Um, but he goes, this is a crazy policy and you're just pushing Russia and China together. And I think the U.S. knows in the short term they will. But I think they think they can bleed. Russia militarily, if they keep them drawn in to you to Ukraine, and that's what all those Nazis were about. That's what all those special forces—the things you talk, talked about two weeks ago, um, Jessica—those articles about all the training that they were doing. They they have been laying the groundwork for essentially uh, a La Brea tar pit into which to draw Russia in, and they can just, you know, the, the deeper Russia gets drawn in, the more the U.S. can continue to use Ukraine as essentially a place to fight World War III. And this is why Ukraine is uh, being, it's like, it, the, the dis, I'm disgusted by liberals who put the Ukrainian flag up with is really, all it's doing is inviting the United States to get in there. When all that really is, is literally the United States is using Ukraine as a plaything. That property is a plaything for a global war. That they that they have planned, and to see if they can bleed using the using the dead people of Ukraine, if they can bleed their opponent, it's yeah. they've done it in Vietnam, they've done it time and time again, and I'm so disgusted by liberals again, particularly with the article I read by another liberal who said, well, maybe a limited nuclear war wouldn't be so bad, maybe it would actually detract from global warming to some extent. Are you fucking kidding me? Like you are a child. You don't know anything about war. Like even these Federalist people understand there's no such thing as limited nuclear war. It gets out of hand fast. And when and they all their all their war gaming has Russia losing. And that's why one billion people die, because they know no nobody, no nuclear power is going to leave the stage with those nukes not used. That's not going to happen. So 
they're when they get kicked off the stage, they're going to tip a board over. And a lot of people are going to die because of it. And they know that. So they know that's true about Putin. They know it's true about the guy in China. And they know it's true about the United States. None of them lose without using those weapons before they go. And that's why the only solution to any of this is revolution. Russians taking down their government or U.S. workers taking down our government. If we don't do it, and if the Chinese workers don't do it on theirs, it's over. Lights out. That's it. And there's no, there's no policy. There's no planning behind the map. New world order people to think that mommy and daddy are there to take care of you. They're not. They're fighting each other. And it's a, it's a fight to the death. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's fucking disgusting. Like I think all these people putting like hashtag I stand with Ukraine in their bios, like I, I don't think half of them could find it on a map like, <laughs> six months ago, six weeks ago, probably. But I, I do, I, I do disagree with um, the election thing. I absolutely think that this is going to help them in the elections. Uh, I mean, approvals of Biden like a month or two ago were really, really low. Um, I do think like the price of gas and and that kind of stuff is is going to hurt them probably more than they think because people are fucking poor. I mean, so many people in this country are desperate as fuck but um they did i mean in terms of the liberals they spent two years on russiagate you know so they didn't even have to try to hold up a villain like that was already all that groundwork was already taken care of it doesn't matter that you know it's nazis in the ukrainian military um you know, and, and and nobody here like remembers any of the history because we're not taught it in school that, you know, we flew in at the at the eleventh hour in World War Two. Meanwhile, Russia had I mean, how many people did they lose? Like uh, yeah, twenty million or something like that. Twenty, thirty million. yeah, I I don't know. I've heard everything from a like big part of fifty million. Yeah. Up to like fifty. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 one like justification that Putin's given, you know, and take it for what it will, right? Is to denazify Ukraine. Um, I mean, that's a little, a little rosy, <laughs> rosy colored perhaps, but I do think um, a lot of people, and I hope it's not as many as um, it was the last election, right? But yeah, I mean, war, like war pull, pulls people in, like people are going to vote and they're going to think that that is gonna help and it like of course it does fucking nothing like it does nothing but endorse the whole bullshit system that we should be tearing down um but i think like you already see it like the people who had you know mask up get vaccinated get boosted now they've got ukrainian flags that they're flying and they're posting you know donate to this charity for ukrainian children right and posting all these pictures some of which I'm sure are real, but many of them are not. <laughs> many of them are staged or from, you know, years, years ago. And then that's going to be replaced by, you know, like I voted stickers and all of this crap. So I don't know. Um, and I also saw today um, Democrats, uh, I was just looking, I don't know where it is, but the emergency package, like the latest um, 
emergency money that they're trying to put through that Biden's administration is trying to put through for new COVID strategy and it's you know vaccines and testing antivirals and stuff so it doesn't I don't know like it doesn't seem like it's completely over but I do think there's a sense of like oh, now I can like go out with my friends and things are going to seem more positive for the laptop left, you know, and people who have not been suffering. And I, I mean, the number of people just in my little community of like academia and people that I know from Seattle and stuff, like the number of people who have said to me, like, oh, like, well, gas should be this expensive. In fact, it should be more expensive because of climate change. And it's mm-hmm. fuck you. Like, are you kidding me? Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's so ignorant of how the majority of this country is actually living. Sorry, I went like all over the place. No, yeah. Reel us back. No, I think um, I'm, I um, I agree with a lot. I, I also think like Jessica, as far as the Biden um, winning um, the people right now with uh, the Ukraine, I'm not sure what his latest polls are. But I, I think it's it's something that is unifying both the left and the right, more so the left, I think. So for me, it does feel that this is one of those winning issues. Uh, and um, I'm beginning to see, and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I'm beginning to see that COVID is being talked about less, not um, because, of, because of, the, of Ukraine, and um, not like it's still, it's changing the narrative. It's not, rather, uh, some restrictions are being lifted. Maybe uh, some parts of the economy need to, be, need to move and maybe the strategy around this is not working. So obviously Ukraine being on people's mind is, is in a new way of trying to uh, have us a continuation of what COVID was to, I actually think before but the pandemic, there was also the weapons of mass destruction and there was also other wars and immigration also being an issue. The, these things are actually a continuation of more of trying to find boogie people, you know, um, and a distraction from um, the failures of the economy in a capitalist society. So, um, so, I, so I think that this is the adopted strategy currently. And maybe that's why there is a beginning, an ease of lifting of masks, and uh, but there isn't a change in 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 getting everyone's data, no, to be able to enter spaces or to be able to collect that, or um, the obedience strategy is still there, but uh, there are leniencies, right? So it right now it's just blaming the unvaccinated for continuous blaming of the unvaccinated. Um, oh yeah, I think that that's where I think this is heading. I think this is a change in in the way that uh, you know, in the way that we are seeing uh, the narrative pivot. I yeah. One more thing, really fast, just in terms of like messaging. Like, I think the stance that we should have uh, as Americans should be no war in Ukraine, right? Which is what like people are are putting in their on their social media and even like fucking protesting 
no war in Ukraine, but like not for the reasons that they're feeding you. But that's not a, that's like a confusing message, I think, for a lot of people in this country who don't have the time or just don't want to like look into the history. You know, they're just looking at surface level mainstream media. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just don't think that's like a tenable like message to build solidarity around. I mean, even in Seattle, there's like a kind of little anti-war, anti-imperialist group that I was kind of hanging around with um, toward the end of my time there kind of um, emerged out of um, people that I met through the uh, like free Assange movement. And they were like going to do a protest the other day, um, basically like a, a anti-war, but like also anti-NATO uh, messaging. So kind of more aligned with, I think, our our variations. <laughs> and there were protesters like on the other side of the overpass who were also like no war against um, Ukraine, but they were coming at it from like a total neoliberal, you know, evil Putin. And I think it, that just shows like it's just confused messaging. And, and, and like my friends were saying like, we don't want to be like confused with them. Like we're anti-war, but, but no. Right. And I mean, even just like, why does NATO exist? It's been three decades since the breakup of the Soviet Union? Like, what is the justification? I mean, it's insane. But you can't, you know, you can't, you can't say that. Like people, people freak out. Just like when you say, I'm unvaccinated. Back to yeah, I, you know, Jessica, <laughs> I, I consider myself to be a part of that anti-war movement. I consider myself to be from, you know, that 2003, 2004, the, the war of Iraq and all of that. I remember, you know, I've said it before. I was in high school here in San Francisco and I saw everyone going to uh, downtown and it was massive and I joined it. I walked out of school and I still feel like I'm a part of that. I'm also a part of the uh, anti-GMO movement, you know, and, and organic foods. And, and I'm a part of, as well as, you know, I was a part of the animal rights movement and I'm also part of a lot of these movements, but these movements I've noticed will not, they take this stance, but then they are adopting censorship. They are adopting, you know, um, the, all, all of these other stands that it's, it's conflicting. They're not making sense. How can you be anti-war and still be approving of all the censorship? The, the, we, we are in this moment in time where you're seeing you know, completely that our freedoms are being infringed upon. We're not able to say anything these days. And then all of these people, like the anti-GMO folks, they're all accepting all these vaccines with all the things that they do with the modification in, with the biotechnology that, that the new biotechnology that we're, that we have in, 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 in the vaccine. So I don't see how these people make sense of that. And I ask my friends that, you know, you're part of the anti, you, you know, anti-GMO, you're part of, making sure that, you know, we, we don't mess with DNA, but at the same time, though, I don't understand how you make sense of accepting this vaccine. So I, I see there's a lot of, there's like a lot of conflicting positions that people are holding. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm still just, you know, myself, I'm being ousted. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing I would say is in the same way that we have come to understand, well, I'll speak from my side of the left, mm -hmm. socialist side of the left. 
probably includes the anarchists, I would guess, but I can't speak for them. We might have thought there was a socialist movement in the United States. Some people thought that Bernie Sanders represented this the sentiment for socialism that exists in the United States. Um, not just Bernie Sanders, but all the people behind him, you know, like the, the crowds of people who were supporting him. We might have thought such a thing existed in this country. Uh, that socialism was a fake. It was as valuable as fake gold because it had no content of value into it. It had no actual actual desire for revolution in it. And we probably thought we had an anti-imperialist movement in this country, and we don't. An anti-imperialist movement in this country would know one thing, that every war the U.S. enters is an imperialist war. And it's entered not just at the price of those where the fighting is happening, but very much at the cost of the workers in this country. And that the only way to stop such a war, well, the only because it, it because imperialist war is rooted in capital in the capitalist system, the only way to stop it is socialist revolution, and that means workers tearing down their own government and building their own working class democracy in in the in the ruins of that government um, or dual power, whatever you want to call it. And so that's to me that's what the task would be, which is to say we have and we are the U.S. is engaged in an imperialist war. Um, and it's doing so because of the deep crisis that the system is in. It's a war with Russia and not with Ukraine or for Ukraine. It's a, it's a war with Russia inside of Ukraine that is happening. And it's going to come at the risk of all of us because it could be a nuclear war. But it, it comes directly at a cost to us, as we can already see, because they're already telling us you're going to have to give this, you're going to have to give it. If you want independence in Ukraine, you got to give this, this and this. And RT America is shut down and all this kind of stuff like, you know, um, Eduardo's talking about, can't say anything. So the notion has to be rebuilt from the very beginning, um, from the ground up, because it doesn't exist in this country, because we thought we had an anti-imperialist war against Iraq, against Afghanistan. It wasn't anti-imperialist. It was liberal. Um, and so we have to start from scratch and, and put, I do believe, put at the heart of any anti-imperialist sentiment a pro-revolution sentiment, because that's what that, the one thing I really agree with that letter was that the Russians wrote is that the task before them is to take on their own government. And that's the task for us here. Whether you're socialist or not, I believe those are our tasks. And, and just, if you would think about for a moment, what it would have been like for the, our US government to have tried to do something like this if our US trucker convoy had had the strength of the Ottawa trucker convoy and was literally encircling Washington DC at the very same time that they're trying to send, you know, weapons and fight Russia. That's a very interesting kind of moment right there. And it gives you a sense of how workers could actually begin to challenge their own government in, um, in, in saying, who's really going to make decisions here? That's actually for the benefit of us. How about those biolabs? <laughs> oh, I did want to say, sorry, I'm going to add this. I was talking to Brandy about this with the, all the money that Biden is talking about putting into these drugs for COVID and like that, all of that. And again, I, this is how I see it now. All of that is, is public private partnerships with us fusing with the state, the bio, the big pharma fusing with the state. And, and these are the definite preparations the country makes for war. Those sorts of fusions of your own government, increasingly financially fusing its own interests with its own corporations and picking winners, in this case, Pfizer and Merck. Um, there's a biotech part component to the war that the US is planning on making with China. They said it in 2018, I definitely believe it's not just about big pharma profits. It is about 
the U.S. state getting behind its most powerful pharmaceutical and biomedical institutions with the aim of preparing them for economic and then ultimately military warfare with its opponents. Yeah, I mean, let's remember, like, these are DARPA-funded, DARPA-developed vaccines. Yeah. What about, though, because the Russian vaccine, right, Sputnik, well, they've, they're tied up with AstraZeneca, right? Well, they have a similar technology, and I have heard that, you know, maybe there was some over thing, but it's a different vaccine. Um, the Astras, they are similar in that they both use the adenovirus thing, and they have a double-stranded DNA inside. But, I meant like the funding and the development of it. Isn't is there not some connection there? There might have been. I mean, Russia and Europe have a connection as well. But again, those things can be like that. But they can be, as we can see now, we have all sorts of connections with Russia that are now being closed, 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 closed. Yeah. Um, so I I don't know how Sputnik is done. Um, I still think that the future for Russia is going to be very much tied to putting itself under the wing of China to protect itself from the worst aspects of this war. It's now put it, it's now in. And I think China knows that too. <laughs> I think China knows that a war for Russia with Russia doing this, that they can get bled, but that also makes them more dependent on China. <laughs> so, and I, and I do, the one thing I think I got right was the fact that they weren't going to do this till after the Chinese uh, Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I read, I don't know if that's true about, you know, that they, that China basically asked Putin, like, oh, can you wait until after? I think, I think that's true. And I, yeah, I do too. Yeah. And I think, I do think China's calling the shots on this one. Interesting. Certainly saying, hey, we'll back you. You know, here, we're going to minimize the risks for you because um, there are risks and we'll, we'll protect you. You can fall onto these, into the soft net, but it's actually a net that they'll collect, catch them in and, you know, China's no nicer than the United States. Yeah. Pretty funny seeing the U.S. go and uh, ask Maduro for oil, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, are, right. You, are you kidding me? How yeah. embarrassing. You just have no shame at all. <laughs> like, shouldn't you be asking Juan Guaido for oil? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that is funny. But again, people they get to keep getting a pass, pass after pass after pass. They can do all these absurd, completely hypocritical things. And people are like, uh. Ah. Yeah, I mean, COVID's over and they've relinquished so much of the narrative, right? But like, has there been a single fucking arrest, a single like nobody is being held accountable? Well, it's not even fucking Fauci. Like, did you see that Pfizer is now making various court moves? to release itself from any liability if it should be found that these things did a bunch of harm. Like they're literally changing like their personhood status. It's like a strange backdoor legal thing so that even it should be found that all these things did all this harm, that they will not, because of their particular legal status that they as an institution are, that they can't be subject to, um, to have any, any of, to paying some sort of fine or anything like that. So these people are shameless. Should we? Yes, yeah. is a good place to conclude. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time, folks. This was good. Yeah, this was a lively discussion. My, there's all kinds of angles to it. Yeah. 
what Kenny thinks, hopefully, next week. Or <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast that's channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests in the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webno.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications uh, to any of our eight platforms or nine platforms now, I think it is, Andy. Right, on podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Podcasts, Digital Google Play, Channels, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, uh, Rumble, and you can find us on Telegram. Right, good. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. Andy will answer there. <laughs> now Jessica. And Jessica. Yeah. See, maybe she'll answer because Eduardo won't answer anything. Kenny will. Jessica, maybe you'll answer some of the YouTube thing. People were saying such nice things to Eduardo. They didn't. He didn't, uh, he didn't respond at all. Cut, 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 cut. I will. <laughs> I will respond. To all of that That's gonna be cut. Damn it, we're keeping that. No, I guess not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm Eduardo Arca with co-host Jessica and Andy Lipson. Thank you all very much. <laughs> Ciao. Bye. Andy, why are you trying to put me on the spot? <laughs>